It's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much for worshiping with us on this Sunday and for making sure you got here on time, which is a feat in and of itself on a day like today where we lose an hour. My name is Zach Thompson, and I'm on staff here at Calvary Bible Church. Uh, I was thinking this past week about uh, the, those movies where uh, there is someone who is, is dying. They're at the end of their life, and, and they maybe are the bad guy in the movie or someone close to the, the hero of the story. And with their dying breath, they're passing along a message, maybe something to, to motivate the, the main character or uh, some instruction that they will need uh, that will come to, to help save them. And so essentially, it's uh, as this character character is dying. They're using their last moments to pass along what they think is the most important thing. So I think of uh, Return of the Jedi, where Darth Vader is, is dying, and, and he has this last opportunity to pass something along, what he thinks Luke Skywalker desperately need. And he says, you were right about me. Tell your sister you were right. It's this beautiful moment of character development, of, uh, and it's exactly what, what Luke needs to hear in that moment. Or the movie Signs, where Mel Gibson's character's wife is dying, and she conveniently gets just enough time to pass along a message to everyone in her family. And she gives this bit of advice at the end. She says, tell Meryl to swing away, which wouldn't you know it? That's the exact phrase that they need to say at the end of the movie, and that's what saves the family at the end. Or I think of uh, Saving Private Ryan, where uh, Tom Hanks leads a group of soldiers to well, save Private Ryan. And uh, they, they go and they, they find him, they rescue him, but it ends up being a suicide mission. All of those soldiers end up dying and Tom Hanks is there and he grabs Private Ryan by the collar and he says, earn this. It's really the worst possible thing he could have said in that moment, but that's not the point I want to make. Instead, it's in all of these movies, you have a character who is at the end of their life and they are trying to pass along the information that they think this person needs, that they have this final moment. What does this person need before, uh, after they are gone? And I bring that up because we're in a similar place to that in our series in the book of Luke, that we have been going through this and we've been hearing Jesus predict that he is going to die. Even as recently as Luke chapter 18, he says, we're going to Jerusalem where I will be handed over to the Gentiles. I'll be mocked, beaten, and killed. And we on this, having the advantage of being on this side of history, we know that that's true. And so from Luke 19 on, we're reading the words of Jesus that come from his last week of, of being on this planet. His last week before he goes and dies. And so, and so what we're finding in this is that Jesus is, is choosing his message carefully. He's choosing what it is that he's teaching very carefully. What do his disciples need to know? What, what teaching do they need to receive? Because he is about to get to a point where he no longer sees them face to face every day. What is the most important thing that they will need to know after he is gone? Last week, we talked about the resurrection, the certainty of life even after we have died, that there is coming a day when we will be with God in perfect union with him, in eternal joy and bliss of what that is. He's been teaching of the certainty of how we are saved, of what the future looks like. Those are pretty important topics, right? And Jesus is focusing on that before he goes. 
But with that comes a question, or at least comes a question for me. How do we live now? We talk about this, this beautiful future where there's new bodies and no pain, no hurts, no, no more disease anymore, no, 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 uh, no, none of the hardships that we go through. That sounds so wonderful. So how do I live now when that's not the case? How do I live when there's so many things that try to take away my hope, when there are hardships, when there are hurts that seem to overwhelm me? How do we continue to hold on to that hope now? And as Jesus is in the last week of his life, as he's choosing these topics of what his disciples, what his followers need to know, he spends time on that question. In fact, he spends so much time that all of Luke chapter 21 is on that one topic. How do we maintain hope when there are so many things that feel so unsettling, that try to take away our hope? Well, this is what we see is, is uh, what Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 21, that we are able to live out of this hope because we are warned and empowered and so there's so much in this life that, that seems to want to take away our hope. There's so much that feels so unsettling. How do we maintain hope in Jesus? How do we maintain hope in this future? Well, we are able to. We live constantly out of the hope that we have because Jesus warns us of what we will go through and he empowers us to live through those things. He warns us and empowers us. Uh, we just had uh, Marianne read for us uh, Luke 21, uh, verses 34 through 38. And, and in that, there was a couple phrases. Maybe, maybe you picked up on it. It talks about how uh, that day, when that day comes, it, it says, it will come, that day will come, or to escape all these things. It's, it's using these phrases, and, and these all point to something else. Well, what day? What will come? What are, what are all these things? And for us to understand what it is that Jesus is trying to warn us about, for, for us to look at, at how Jesus is preparing us to live by hope, we need to look at chapter 21 as an entire whole to, to try to get what is Jesus warning us about so that we can maintain our hope in him, our hope in his future. Now, here's the thing. Uh, I'm not going to do that. And, and there's a couple of reasons why I'm not going to look at all of chapter 21. Uh, laziness and apathy mostly are them. No, there are 38 verses in this chapter. I cannot possibly do justice to every single one of those verses in the time that's allotted to me. And that's even with the bad habit that I've been developing of preaching a little bit too long over the past one or two years. Um, <clears throat> but the other part of why we're not able to go through all of the verses that are in this chapter is there's a ton of details. There's a ton of specific words and phrases that are used here that Christians, did you hear the title that I used? Christians, genuine, legitimate followers of Jesus, the people that we are united by the same hope, by the same future resurrection and the same trust and worship in Jesus. There are details in this pas passage that Christians disagree over. Uh, I, I have a copy of the ESV study Bible and there's a section in there where one phrase here, there's a paragraph that says, here are six different interpretations that Christians take on this passage. And that's one of the phrases. So I, I don't have the, the time or capacity or even the knowledge to answer all of these questions about what, is, what, what, are, what are these hardships in life? What is it like when Jesus comes back? What, what are our future? What am I supposed to be doing? I don't have the answer to all those things. 
but there's good discussion that can come from wrestling over the details here of trying to understand what is Jesus warning us about? What is coming up ahead of us? Those are good discussions to have, but what I want to do with, with our time this morning is look at how can we maintain hope? How can we live out of the hope that we have? I, that's going to be my main focus because I, I think that's Jesus' main focus in this passage. We're talking first about how we live out of this hope because we are warned by him. And so let's look at that. This is Luke 21, starting in verse 5. Luke 21, 5. It says, While some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, this is Jesus, said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left one stone on top of another that will not be thrown down. This temple you're looking at, that's so beautiful, it will be destroyed. Verse seven, and they asked him, teacher, uh, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And so Luke gives us the setting of this conversation, all of this warning that Jesus gives about what will happen, what what will occur in the lives of his followers. It all takes place at the temple. And it describes him as as looking at the noble stones and and all that's going on in this building and and how majestic this this temple building is. And it was. It's incredible by our standards, but let alone back then. It was considered one of the preeminent buildings of the world at the time let alone the fact that most of the people around Jesus were from a very rural part, from Galilee, where they were used to huts. And now for them to see a building that dwarfed them, that was so immaculate, so grand. It's like if you took someone from middle of nowhere, Iowa. I'm not picking on Iowa. It's just a state at random. But you took someone from middle of nowhere, Iowa, and you put them in New York City. Wouldn't they marvel at the size of the buildings? I marveled at the size of the buildings. And that's what we see here, looking at how grand of a building this is. But it's not just how big of a building it is that they're marveling at. It's how significant it is. You see, the temple was the most important building. All other buildings paled in comparison to uh, the Jewish people at the time than the temple. This is where they were made right with God. This was where they were reminded constantly of God's promises to them. This is where they were reminded about how God called them out to, to tell the whole world about who he is. This was a picture of all that God promised that he would do and, and the promises he will keep through them. This was a, a picture of, of all that God had done in their past. The temple stood for so much in their life. It was such a significant piece. They scheduled their life around going to the temple. And Jesus says, yeah, it's going to be destroyed. It's hard for us to imagine how unsettling of a phrase that would be. To to have such an important building be destroyed for them. We can't imagine how much of an upheaval that would be for their lives. We were trying to guess as as pastors and uh, Thomas at the Erie campus, he suggested maybe it's like if we were told the internet is going away because we would go to, well, all my shows are on the internet. Uh, The the videos that I watch of how to learn how to fix my house, that's, that's all on the internet. 
how I even find my house. Some, sometimes I don't know what streets to take. That's over the internet. I access all of my money over the internet. If that was gone, it would completely change our lives as, as we know them or as we've gone used to knowing them. It's not a clean comparison, but that's the similar idea. If the temple was gone, I mean, what even are we supposed to do? Our whole life is centered around the temple. Our, our identity, our, our religious purpose is connected to this building. If that's gone, who are we? And so we can kind of be understanding of the follow-up questions that are asked of Jesus, right? Wait, 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 the temple's gonna be destroyed? Okay, when's this gonna happen? What's the sign that this is gonna happen? Tell me everything about this thing that I need to know. There's desperation behind their, their questions. And what we know to be true is that, is that Jesus is speaking truth here. That a handful of years after his death, in the year 70, the temple is destroyed. And still to this day, in many places, stones that were on top of each other have not been built again. And yet Jesus is warning his followers of what it is that's about to happen telling them that this temple is going to be destroyed, but warning them in advance so that they could be prepared, so that they aren't caught unawares, that this doesn't make them question or lose their hope. And, and throughout this chapter, Jesus gives multiple warnings to these people. But it's important that we understand that initial context of this passage. There's a lot of questions that happen about uh, what is it telling us about our future? And, and we will get there. But the initial context is at the temple. The question is, what are the signs that the temple is being destroyed? And then Jesus answers that question. And so uh, with that being the case, what is it that Jesus warns those people that are with him at the temple of the signs that the temple will be destroyed? Well, the first thing that he warns them of is that of there will be pretenders. He warns them that pretenders will come. Uh, this is verse eight. And he, Jesus said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Here's the warning. Do not go after them. Jesus warns that there will be pretenders, people who are claiming to be the Christ, claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be sent from God with, with truth and, and how they're gonna lead the people back. Or, or even Jesus has promised, as he's foretold of his death, he's also been telling that he will return in a very visible bodily way. And there are people who have claimed to be Jesus. Uh, all throughout history, this has been the case. And even recently, uh, as recent as right after Jesus died, people claimed to be him. And Jesus says, do not go after them. Many will come pretending to me, be or, or acting like they are me. And so he warns them of these pretenders. And what we know is this is true. In fact, one of the reasons why the temple was destroyed is there was someone claiming to be the Christ, claiming to be the Messiah, who led a bunch of militant Jewish people into the temple in, as they were fighting against Rome. And that was part of the reason why the temple was destroyed. And so he's warning them, what is a sign that the temple will be destroyed? Well, there will be pretenders. He also warns them of pain, that following Jesus, following me, you will experience pain. Verses nine and 10 talk about wars and earthquakes and famines and pestilence, all of these, uh, these things that were symbols of God's judgment in the Old Testament. 
And then in verse 20, it talks about how Jerusalem will be surrounded, sieged by their enemies. These are horrifying things, awful things. And aren't they the sort of events that would cause people to be shaken? Wouldn't this risk them losing their hope, going through all of this wondering, what if Jesus was wrong? What if I'm not supposed to be, why isn't God protecting me from all this? And so to, to help his followers live out of hope, he warns them of the pain that they will experience. Third, he warns them of persecution. As you continue to read through this passage, it talks about how uh, following, uh, those who are following Jesus will be handed over to authority. They'll have to stand trial, that even friends or families would betray them and, and uh, have them arrested, that, that they'll have to give a defense for it, that they'll be delivered up. Some, uh, verse 16 says, some of you will even be put to death, that you will be hated all for his namesake. That's verse 17. He's warning his followers that of all this, this hardship that they will go through, this persecution that they will experience because of following him. How are they able to have hope in these situations? Don't these sound like the type of things that would, that would strip them of their hope? I mean, going through pretenders, uh, how do we know this isn't Jesus? How do we know they aren't sent from God? They're, they're telling us to do something. Do we trust them? It starts to rattle their hope. Or pain, why do I have to go through all of this? Why are all of these things happening? Or persecution, is following Jesus really worth this? Losing friends, losing family, losing lives? And knowing what his followers will go through, Jesus helps them to not lose hope by giving them this warning in advance, helping them to see what it is that will happen now, we talked about how the context here is, is so much about the destruction of the temple and, and how uh, Jesus' followers will go through that. But this isn't just for those in the first century. Like we read about this and like, how nice is it that Jesus treated his uh, initial followers well? But how does this impact us? There's a warning in this passage for us as well. There's a warning for all of his followers uh, throughout all of the church history as well. But I think we have a little bit of an advantage. His, his original followers were listening to him at the temple, tell, having this warning given to them. I, I think we're in a little bit of a better position. And that's because we've seen him keep his promises. He promised that he will die, raise again, and be ascended. He kept that. He promised that the temple will be destroyed. He kept that. So as he offers us a warning uh, in our lifetimes, I think we can trust his warnings even more so. This is what Jesus says that time is leading to. This is verse 25. It says that there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heaven will be shaken. What is everything building to? And then they will see the Son of Man, Jesus, coming in the cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. 
we talked about what some of the details mean and how uh, we're not focusing here, but, but I mean, you read this passage and maybe you're like me and the question is, what? Uh, what is it? Trans- what are these signs and sun and moon and stars? Why is the sea roaring? Why are people fainting with fear? Uh, like these details I think are worth asking about, but, but the important part I think is there's a lot of similarity between the language in this section and the language Jesus used to warn about the destruction of the temple. They're very similar between them. So there's a parallel being given to us of what is going on before the temple is destroyed and what is going on in the life lived before he comes back. And so what is it that we are warned about? Well, it's the same thing. Pretenders, pain, persecution. That same warning is given to us. Those are things that we might experience in this life until the day that he comes back. Because that's the the flow of the passage. The temple has been destroyed at this part. It talks about uh, the times of the Gentiles. We're not going to get into that, but it's it's worth asking, what does that mean? And then it gives this, this time of Jesus coming back. And so, it's this warning that's given to Christians at all times. But it starts with that warning given at the temple. This is uh, one of those, oh, surely this is the end moments. That's what the Jewish people would have been thinking when the temple was destroyed. Do you know what I mean by that? So something catastrophic, something so tumultuous that people look at and say, this must be the end of times. It's such a big change, such a big disaster for people that, that clearly there's no coming back for this. Clearly, this is God bringing about the end. And what Jesus says first to those, uh, as this warning that he gives is, this is not the end. This is not the end. But be prepared for it to happen. And then all throughout history, ever since then, people have been having these, oh, surely this is the end moments. When the Black Plague is going through Europe, surely this is the end. When the Allied powers are fighting the Axis powers, when uh, the Cold War looks like it's about to erupt at any moment, Y2K is going to wipe out the whole world as we know it. The Broncos lost 43-8 to to the Seahawks in the Super Bowl. Clearly, things cannot get any worse than this. In the midst of people constantly preaching the end of times, or saying this is when it's gonna happen, or in, in the midst of Jesus' followers going through the worst of pretenders and pains and persecutions, we are given a glorious gift, a warning. That from the beginning, as Jesus is going to the cross, as he is about to die, what is it that he wants to make sure his followers know this is gonna happen? And what does that mean? Well, it means that none of it's outside of God's control. He's not caught off guard by it. This isn't some accident. Us wondering, why is all this happening? Did Jesus make a mistake? Is something wrong? No, God is still very much so in control. None of this is outside of his power. None of this can overwhelm us. You get this interesting parallel between uh, a couple of verses. Verse 16 talks about those uh, before the temple uh, was destroyed. He says that some of you will be put to death And then verse 18, it says, not a hair on your head will perish. How do those work together? Well, it tells us that even with the worst that we will go through, the worst that life could throw us, the worst uh, of pretenders and pain and persecution, that there is nothing that will have a lasting impact on us, nothing that will impact our eternal security, nothing that will take away the goodness of what God has promised us, nothing that can strip us of hope. 
that no matter what we're going through, that we can have hope because we have been warned. But Jesus doesn't just give us a warning. That it's not, hey, things are gonna be bad, so hang in there. He gives us the ability to hang in there as well. Because what this passage focuses on is, is this call of how we are to live, but also what Jesus gives us in order to live in that way. Essentially, it's we are able to live out of this hope because we are empowered. We are given the ability to live as Jesus calls us to live. I talked before about how there's so many details in this passage. We, we asked about some of them. What is, what is the time of the Gentiles? When's that gonna be fulfilled? What was going on with the sign of the sun, moon, and stars? Uh, what, what's what's the, the powers of the heaven that will not be shaken? What does it mean when it says uh, that, uh, that, that this generation will not pass away until all this is taken? There, there's so many questions that we can ask about what's going on with this passage. And those are good questions to ask us to wrestle with those details, I think is a good thing. But what does Jesus primarily focus on? There's a lot of commands. There's multiple calls of how we are to live now. Uh, Let me put it this way. Jesus has asked a specific question. You cannot get more specific than the question. The temple's about to be destroyed. What is the sign of that? When's that gonna happen? And he does answer a little bit. But mostly what his response involves is here's how you are to live. I'm warning you this is what's about to occur, but here is how you are to live even in the worst of of pretenders and pain and persecution. And so while it's good to wrestle over the details, while it's good for us to wonder what is it that Jesus is talking about in these sections, they should have a lesser place in our lives than what Jesus specifically talks about, which is how we are to live now. The bulk of the passage is not about the details of his return or what's going to happen or what causes it or, or charts that we may draw, but it's instead of how Jesus tells us to live. And so much of this passage is focused on it. And if this is what Jesus is focusing on right before his death, we should take that seriously that we are given this hope in this life to come. We are given this hope that is rooted in him and how we live now in the midst of all that life might throw at us, we are to live out of the hope that we have in him because he empowers us to do so. And and a couple things that we see in this passage, we are empowered to not be deceived or to despair. We're empowered to not be deceived or despair. We talked uh, in verses eight and nine about how there's pretenders who come, those who claim to be Jesus or claim to be sent from God. It's so easy to be deceived in those situations. Or or we talked about the pain that we go through. It's, It's really easy to go from disappointment in life or wishing things were different and quickly losing hope, quickly spiraling into despair that there's teachers or messages that we receive that, that try to convince us to turn away from God or put our attentions and affections in anything other than him. There's messages that we tell ourselves when we're disappointed, when we're discouraged, and we tell ourselves that there's no reason to believe otherwise. There's no reason to hope. And in the midst of these times, we're, we're called to not be deceived. We're called to not despair. And we're, it's not just like try really hard to do this. So like make sure that you're, you're not being deceived or not despairing. Like that's not what Jesus calls us to. Instead, he gives us the ability to not do so. He gives us the ability to not be deceived, to not be despair. Because 
What is it that makes us do those things? What might make us be deceived? What might make us despair? It's when we're turning away from him, when we're looking to other things, when we're discouraged, and that turns even further than that. So what is the response to that? Well, we take comfort in the fact that he has given us his word, that he has given us his Bible. And so we are connected to the hope that we have by regularly and habitually turning to what he has said to us, what we can learn from him. I mean, it's hard to be deceived if we are rooted in truth. It's, it's difficult. Despair doesn't take hold if we are constantly reminded of our reason for hope. So how are we empowered to, to not be deceived or despair? We turn to the truth that's been given to us as our firm foundation on all things. We are empowered as well to endure. This is an idea that shows up twice in our passage. In verse 19, it says, uh, by your endurance, you will gain your life. So this idea is as you hold on to this hope, as you live out of the hope that we have, that remaining faithful to him till the end, we will have that life that is to come. Our hope will be realized. But it's not just like hold on, just really try to hold on. No, no, we are given the ability to endure. Verse 36 that was read for us earlier uh, said, uh, praying that you may have the strength to escape, that you may have the endurance to escape all these things. So it's not just that Jesus comes along and says, things are gonna be really bad, good luck with it. He continues to remain active and faithful in our lives. How do we endure in the midst of all that life might throw at us? How do we survive these pretenders and pains and persecutions? We turn to God for all things. We pray for that strength. We pray for endurance, not something that we generate within ourselves. We remain connected to the God who warns us as the God who sustains us in all things. We are empowered to stay awake. This comes from verses 34 and 36. That's the warning to stay awake, to remain alert, to not be caught off guard. And it also talks about how we might be caught off guard. It talks about dissipation, which is a word that we use in our daily life, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, dissipation is uh, being wasteful with resources or rather overly indulgent, overly indulgent in pleasures. It also talks about being uh, f focused on the cares of this world. The idea is that we may be so focused on our life here, amassing comfort, amassing wealth, that this gets all of our focus, that we shift our eyes from God, from our future, from our life that is actually permanent but we are called to stay awake, to live in such a way as if we are anticipating Jesus coming back tomorrow. I used this illustration in first service. I, I don't think it worked then, so let's try it again. Uh, so uh, when I was a kid, I got into, uh, tr not trouble, but I ran into difficulty every six months. Uh, see, I wasn't good at flossing. And so what I thought I could do is when I, when I was reminded that my dentist appointment was coming up, that week or the few days leading up to it, oh man, I was the world's best flosser at that time. I, my thinking was if I can pack six months worth of flossing into these couple days, I could trick my dentist in thinking like, oh, you've been doing a great job. It, completely unaware of the fact that I actually just showed up with super swollen gums because they weren't used to being so abused like that. Uh, but my, my thinking was, is I did all of that knowing when the, my dentist appointment was coming. 
but what if I always thought the dentist appointment was coming up? What, what if I didn't know the actual date? What if it's, is it tomorrow? Then I, I should probably floss just to not be, not, not embarrass myself in front of the dentist like I normally do. Or is it the next day? Well, let's, let's make sure that I'm flossing today. And so the idea is that we are to not be caught off guard. We are to stay awake, always anticipating, living in such a way like Jesus is coming tomorrow. Is he? I don't know, but I'm going to live in such a way. The illustration breaks down because we're not trying to do all this to earn or look good in front of Jesus. But instead, we are living in such a way that we are prepared. We're anticipating. Our lives that we live today reflect the truth that Jesus is coming back. Could be tomorrow. Either way, I'm going to live as if he is coming back tomorrow. Last thing that we are empowered to do is to bear witness. We are empowered to bear witness. In in verse 13, uh, this comes right after Jesus warns that that there will be be persecution, that they will go through difficulty. They'll be handed over to the authorities. And then this is what Jesus says they are to do in those moments where they're handed over to the authorities. This is verse 13. Uh, Jesus says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. How are we empowered in these moments to bear witness, to tell others about Jesus? Verse 15, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Jesus says in these moments when we are going through, uh, through um, pretenders and pain and persecution, that that is a moment to use to point people to Jesus. Now, this is so contrary to how I respond to pain and difficulty in life. My, my, my instinct is to, to cry out to God to remove that circumstance from me, which is good. We're, we're told that we can do exactly that. My second instinct is to wallow in self-pity. That's less good. But, but what Jesus says is these moments of, of difficulty, these are opportunities to point others to the hope that we have, to point others to this Jesus of why we are clinging to him, why we think that he is worth all of this, to point them to the hope that we have because of Jesus. And this is a hope that is rooted in his death and resurrection, that he has done what he promised to, that we are able to have life and joy and rescue because of him. It is a hope that's rooted in our resurrection, that we look forward to a day of life eternal with joy and bliss, with the removal of all heartache and pain and and destruction that's found in this life. It is a hope that is rooted in the fact that Jesus is coming back, that he will return in in power and great glory, that we are told that, that, this is verse 28, we are told that when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your head, because your redemption is drawing near. How are we able to hold on to that hope in the midst of all that goes on in life? Well, we are able to because we're warned. None of this catches us off guard. None of this is is out of God's control. We're able to live out of this because of, uh, of how Jesus calls us to live, but more importantly, how he empowers us to live. He gives us everything we need to live in this way. And we do so eagerly awaiting the day he returns. This is why we can straighten up. This is why we can raise our heads and all the hope that that comes with because our redemption is drawing near. Every single day it is drawing near. 
And the truth of this, why we have this hope is completely and solely because of Jesus. This hope, this life, this endurance, this awareness, this encouragement, this empowerment, this faithfulness, the triumph of Jesus' return, all of that is because of what he has accomplished. He does not grab us by the collar and with his dying breath say, earn this. Oh no, not at all that we are able to have this hope, this life that we are living now, living faithfully for him, even in the most unsettling of times, is because of what he has already done for us. There is nothing to earn. It has already been given. Are we in a moment when the world is coming to an end? I don't know. Maybe. I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when Jesus returns. But until that day or until the day I die, I'm called to live. Living solely for this Jesus who alone is my life, who alone is my future, who alone is my hope. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful that you see us as people unable to save ourselves and yet you provide salvation. As people unable to live as you've called us to live and yet you give us the means and empowerment to do so. People who could be so easily overwhelmed and yet you give us warning that in all that you've called us to do, you give us the means and motivation to do so. We are so grateful for your love. We are so faithful for your complete a complete faithfulness. We're grateful for that. We're so grateful that in all things that you are holy, you are good, you are God. And so we turn to you and you alone for all things. Amen.